I'll be reading this morning from Ezra chapter 5, Ezra 5 beginning in verse 1. When the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem, Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bazanai and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus, Who issued a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? Then we told them accordingly what, were the, what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report should come to Darius, and then a written reply be returned concerning it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word, and again for the, just the immense privilege of hearing from you, God, that you've not left us in the dark, but that you've spoken to your people, and you are speaking to your people. We thank you, God, that we can gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look to you, God, that you would just teach us, instruct us as you would wish. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, in the book of Ezra, um, where we've been is that God has supernaturally ordered events so that they can leave their captivity and come back to their, to their land for the, really the purpose, if there's one purpose, it would be to rebuild the temple. It took them two years to get started once they got, into the temp, got back to the land. And then they only worked for two years, got the foundation laid, and they stopped. And they stopped because there was opposition. Not because God said stop, not because a decree was issued by, the, um, by Cyrus, the king at the time. They just stopped because there was opposition. And now, after 15 years, God raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to tell them to get back to work, which would have been no small thing. And, and you wonder, well, why did God even have to raise up prophets to do this? Because he had already spoken. He had already said, rebuild the temple, and they had not done so. And I think in part, it's because the longer we go not listening to God, um, the the harder it is to get back on track sometimes. It only takes a moment to get back in fellowship with the Lord. We don't have to do any kind of penance or anything to, to, to turn back to God. Um, instantly we receive because our sin has been paid for. But just to start walking again in a, in a disciplined way with the Lord is not easy when we've spent years neglecting um, our relationship with Christ. And I kind of reminds me like after you've had surgery, um, you shouldn't have to have to pay somebody to, to give you physical therapy. Um, all you need to do is just get on the internet and find some exercises and do them yourself at home. But who's good at that, right? And I've had physical therapy three times now from the same physical therapist, and I'm thankful for him, and he has abused me and tortured me. And, but um, it's, it's been great, and, I'm, and I wouldn't have gone through all those exercises without him standing there going, do it. You know, I know it hurts. You got to do it. And that's a bit of the role of a prophet, where God raises up these men to say, 
get going again. There's no reason for you not to be building your homes. Yeah, there's, there's opposition, but it's not sufficient enough for you to stop your work. So while it's hard to, to really talk about the significance of, of the roles of these men without looking at them, what exactly did they say to the people of Israel to get them going again? So we're not going to look at Zechariah because that's a little longer, a lot longer, but we will look at Haggai. And so if you can find that, it's right at the end of your Old Testament. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, then Zechariah, and, and before Zechariah is Haggai. Zechariah, 14 chapters, so we're not going to look at that this morning, but Haggai is only one chapter, and so we can look at him. And he has um, four messages, very brief messages in these two chapters. And he starts out and he says, um, this is Haggai chapter 1, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. What well, idea? God has said, rebuild the house of the Lord. And the people are going, it's not the right time. And as I said, it's merely because they were facing opposition. Nobody was being beaten. Nobody was being out, you know, outlawed. It was just, they, they just, they were, people were pushing back. And they couldn't handle it. They didn't handle it. And so then the word of the Lord, verse 3, came to Haggai the prophet saying, Oh, it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord. But it is time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while, the house, uh, while this house lies desolate. So it's time for you to build your own house and not just to build a home, but to keep spending money on it until you have paneled houses, which was considered exorbitant in those days. And yet you let the house of God lie desolate. Consider your ways, says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts is the sovereign God who is over everything. Consider your ways. He says, think about what's going on in your life. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put them into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, what he's talking about here is that if you'll think about it, folks, he's saying you're under discipline. God is disciplining you for not doing what he's told you to do. Now, seeing the blessing of God is easy because Scripture says every good thing comes from God. So, so, so seeing and defining blessing is easy. If it's good, God's doing it. Discipline, a little harder. And it is hard sometimes to know when we are under God's discipline. Um, for several reasons. One is because we live in a fallen world. Bad things happen. And it's not God's discipline necessarily. Jesus made a point of that when he says, remember that wall that fell on that, those people and all those people died? Do you think those people were worse sinners than others? And he says they weren't. So you can't say every tragedy is God's discipline. Hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts, it's not necessarily God's discipline. Could be, but not necessarily. You can't um, attribute everything um, to discipline when we have an enemy in this world, Satan. And sometimes we are suffering because we have an enemy who is opposing us and he is after us. So sometimes we suffer because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes we suffer because we have an enemy who hates us. 
Sometimes we're suffering just because we've made bad choices and we reap what we sow, and it's not God disciplining us. So this is why, all those things considered, it's hard sometimes to know what is God's discipline and what isn't, because God does discipline. And so I wanted to spend some time with that because he's listing one of the things here, and he says, this is God's discipline. What is God's discipline? You can never get ahead. For every step forward, you take two steps back. You earn money, and you can't even keep the money that you earn. You plow, and you don't bring back as much food as what you should be getting. And he, and he says, you, you have food, but you don't have enough food to be full. There's like holes in your purses, he says. You just can't get ahead. It's discipline. God is disciplining you. So I just thought, maybe it'd be instructive, because this is an area where we have questions, am I under the discipline of God or not, to just spend some, some time thinking about it. I, you know, when I, when I discipline my, my, my dog, I think he gets the idea. Not absolutely sure, but I think he gets the idea. You can't discipline a cat because it just never it doesn't even know what's going on, right? So, but that's my cat and dog story joke for the morning. Um, I had a friend who who just such a gentle spirit, and he was my boss at one time, and and he was having to rebuke me, and he's such a gentle guy that I didn't even get it that I was being rebuked, and he could tell that. I thought it was just a friendly conversation, and it was not a friendly conversation. And at the end of it, he's, he looked at me and he says, consider yourself rebuked. And I went, oh, that's what this was. And I, and I, and I said, oh, I thank you for telling me. And, and sometimes we just, we, we have to come to God. And really, that's the only answer, ultimately, is we come to God and say, God, what is going on? What is happening here? Is it the enemy? Is it my own poor decisions? Is it just living in a fallen world? Or are you doing something here? Are you after something in my life? And I believe God will answer that question. But as I look at just some passages of Scripture, and with the question in mind, what are some of the things that God uses, what are the things that God does to bring discipline upon the church? What does He do? What does that discipline look like? And why does He do it? What causes that discipline? And so what, what does God do to discipline us, and there are a number of things. Here in, in Haggai, he, he will take away your wealth. You just can't get ahead. Other people around you are making just as much money. Circumstances are just the same, but somehow they always have enough, and you never have enough. That's one thing that he does. James speaks of this. It's not just in the Old Testament, and we have to be careful because this is not prosperity theology. Don't want to go down that road at all. But James does speak to this, and he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, what, and then he'll get into why that is. Why is that happening? I'll get to that in a minute. But one of the things that God does is he will withhold or cause loss to our, our wealth. Another thing that he does is that God sometimes takes away our health and that we can be sick because we are under the discipline of God, because there is sin in our lives and God is wanting to correct us and he will use sickness to do that. Sometimes he takes away um, 
he, he, he disciplines us by, by taking us down a notch. He humbles us because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And sometimes church discipline, God disciplines us through the church. And there are times when the church has to step up and say, fellowship has to be broken until you turn from your sin. And a person has to be removed from the church for the hope that they would be ultimately reconciled to God and to his church. And sometimes God even takes people's lives. But again, we have to be so careful with this because not every time a Christian dies prematurely is it because of the discipline of God. But sometimes it is. And there are several instances in the New Testament where God is taking people's lives because of discipline. So what brings about the discipline of God? And this is not an exhaustive study. I looked at three New Testament books, 1 Corinthians, James, and Hebrews, and, and there are, are at least 10 reasons given in those books for why God disciplines His people. We already made note last week when we talked about um, the church and that we are the building of God, the local church, and I went to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and saw that how the scripture says there, if any man destroys the temple of God, speaking of the local church, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And so the lesson there is that God is prepared to take the lives of those who destroy the spirituality of the church, who so um, lead the church in the ways of the flesh that the church, a spiritual entity, is no longer spiritual in the way that it functions. It's just purely another secular gathering of people for all practical purposes. And when we destroy the church, we destroy the local church by negating the Spirit's influence and authority. And God says that incurs divine discipline. In 1 Corinthians 5, unrepentant sexual sin will bring about the discipline of God. In 1 Corinthians 10, presumptuous sin, the pride of thinking that we won't be judged for our actions as Christians. We're under grace. God doesn't judge Christians. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And the fall there is used of death. In 1 Corinthians 11, we can experience the discipline of God for how we disregard others and treat them as beneath ourselves in the body of Christ, particularly while taking communion. But I don't think that Paul meant only communion in that passage. I think he just means in general. When we as Christians treat other Christians as though they are beneath us, and we are not regarding others more highly than ourselves. We are not thinking so as to have sound judgment when it comes to ourselves and other people. It is an affront to the cross of Jesus Christ. And it incurs the discipline of God. In James 4, 4 to 6, it says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So friendship with the world as a Christian causes me to become the enemy of God 
Do you not know that Scripture speaks to no purpose? That Scripture does not speak to no purpose. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We know from James chapter 4 that speaking against our brothers and sisters in Christ will incur the discipline of God. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. See, speaking of discipline. Who are you to judge your neighbor? So I can be incurring God's discipline by how I speak about my brothers and sisters in Christ. acting presumptuously against God's grace rather than humbly. I already spoke about the presumptuous sin of thinking myself better than others, but there's also the presumption of thinking that I can just carry on with life and do as I please. James 4 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. I can experience God's discipline because I am failing to fulfill my obligations to others which amounts to theft and indifference to others. So in the same passage where James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. And then he comes down and he says, What's going on? He says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, you owe people money. They've done work for you and you're not paying them. Their pay cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. This incurs God's discipline to be indifferent and selfish and robbing others of what is justly due them. God's discipline. God's discipline comes for failing to honor my vows, for failing to be trustworthy in what I promise. From James again, chapter 5, verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Honoring our vows. When we promise to do something, when we just don't even have to say I promise, but we give a commitment to doing something. And certainly we know from Scripture, if there's any vow that God is intent on us fulfilling, it is our wedding vows. Malachi chapter 2, he speaks to that, how he hates divorce, and that divorce is treachery. And it brings us into, again, the discipline of God when we fail to honor our vows. Unconfessed sin. James chapter 5, 14 to 16. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. 
and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And there's God's discipline for straying from the truth. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he turns a sinner from the error of his way and will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In like fashion, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, straying from the truth, or, or Hebrews puts it, willfully abandoning our confession of faith in Christ and the sufficiency of His sacrifice. If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So those are, are several reasons, depending on how you'd like to group them, I, I see at least 10 different reasons why we could come under God's discipline. Destroying the local church by negating the Spirit's influence and authority, unrepentant sexual sin, presumptuous sin, disregarding others, treating them as beneath ourselves, friendship with the world and pride, speaking against our brothers and sisters in Christ, failing to fulfill our obligations to others, failing to honor our vows, unconfessed sin, and straying from the truth. And God is prepared to discipline His people. And sometimes we need, as it were, a prophet to come along and say, do you understand what's going on? These difficulties are not just life in a fallen world. These difficulties are not simply Satan is against Christians in general. Could it be that you're under the discipline of God? I am not a prophet, so don't ask me to <laughs> play that role in your life. I heard of a man that um, was well off financially and a, and a man who was not doing well in his finances, they were both Christians, came to the one that was doing well financially and said, what advice can you give me? Is there anything you can tell me to help turn my financial affairs around? And the man said, yes. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness above all else, and everything else will be added to you. Are you seeking first his kingdom? I think I am. Great. How much of your money do you give away? Do you? Now, we don't, I don't believe that the New Testament tells us to tithe, but it still says to honor God with all that we have. How are you practically honoring God with what God has given you? And the man had to say, I don't know that I can answer that question. And so his well-off friend in Christ said, why don't we start with that? Why don't you go the next two or three months and give God 10%? And then we'll come back and talk about your finances. They never had to have a follow-up conversation. 
Because a man started honoring God first. And the hole in the purse went away. It, it's, it's, again, I am not preaching prosperity theology. But I am saying God deserves to be honored. And he wants to be honored. And he will do practical things to get our attention to where we finally say, God, what's going on? I'm just frustrated here. Years ago, before I was um, the preaching elder at Bernie Bible Church, I, we had a pastor, and, and I filled in for him one Sunday, and the church forgot to give me um, an honorarium. No big deal. I tithed to the church, and so I just thought, using my worldly thinking, the church didn't tithe. Didn't, I mean, the church didn't give me the honorarium when I preached, so I'll just deduct that from my tithe this month. You know, there's something in the Bible about robbing God. <laughs> and it did, didn't even occur to me that I was robbing God. And, and right after that, and I, but I had this check in my heart that this is not right. I'm calculating. I'm trying to just figure this out. And, and I'm just calculating. I'm not trusting God. And not long after that, I was on the back of a flatbed truck going down a dirt road in the night. And there were branches from trees leaning out over the road. And I'm standing up in the back of a flatbed truck, and one of those branches reached out and grabbed my glasses right in the corner and threw my glasses off. Never touched my face. What are the odds? And so the truck stops. I started banging on the roof of the truck. Stop! And so the truck stopped. And so we went out and looked at it, and we found my glasses crushed by the truck. Guess how much a new pair of glasses cost? the same exact amount as the honorarium that I wasn't given. Now, I'm stupid, but I got the message here. You know, you're not going to rob me of tithes and offerings. Honor me and trust me with the outcome. All that you have is mine. It's not 10% is mine. All that you have is mine. And I am more than able to make up the difference in your life. Will you trust me? And I, I have no question in my heart. It was just too many things that, could, that should not have happened. I mean, why, would the, why would the tree grab my glasses and throw them under the truck rather than out in the back or, you know, but under the truck? I mean, not even touch my face. What are the odds? I have students riding the back of my truck all the time. They can tell you. Trees hit them in the face when they go in, that, in the back of my truck. I don't know how that happens, but it happens every time. But this we need to know. Hebrews says, he disciplines those whom he loves. And he loves us. And if anyone, if anyone is without discipline, they are not a child of God. God loves his children. And we sometimes need the discipline of God. Many times we need the discipline of God. And in his goodness, he does that. Five times in Haggai, Haggai says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Five times. Think about what's going on. Ask the question of the Lord. God, why is this? I want, I'm always very careful um, to not say to God, what are you trying, what lesson are you trying to teach me? Because the the inference with that is once you learn the lesson, 
then the, then the trial will be over and you can move on to the next lesson. Right? Oswald Chambers has said, God's goal is the process. God's goal is not to teach us lessons. We learn the lesson and move on to the next lesson. That's how school is. But God's goal is the process, that he is using the process to bring us into greater conformity to Jesus. So it's not about lessons learned as much as it is about coming to Jesus in the trial, in the discipline, and saying, have your way with me. Whatever it is that you're after, I know ultimately it's to bring me into conformity to Jesus. And I want to yield to that supreme purpose, that I would be brought into conformity to you and that Christ would therefore be exalted in my life. He does teach us lessons, don't get me wrong, but the main thing is not lessons learned, but a life brought into conformity to Christ. And if I never know what the lesson is I'm supposed to learn, I know what he's after. Conformity to Jesus Christ. In the second message of Haggai, he says in verse 4 of chapter 2, Take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua the son of Jozdak, the high priest and all you people of the Lord. Take courage. Three times, take courage, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made, made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Take courage, take courage, take courage. Do the work and don't fear. I am with you. Which raises another question. Does God, first question was, does God discipline us? What does that discipline look like? Another question is, can we stop God's work in our lives? They were stopping God's work on a building. Can we stop God's work in our lives? We know the Bible says that he will never, um, he, will, he will finish the work that he has begun in each one of us. Philippians 1.6. We know that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Amen, hallelujah. But the scripture also says that we can grieve the spirit and we can quench the spirit. I thank the Lord that it says that when we see him, we shall be like him. I don't understand all this. We will see him and we will be like him. He remains faithful even when we are faithless. He will bring to, to completion the work that he has begun in our life. But I also know I can sin against God. And I can stop his effective work in me in terms of growth. God causes the growth. And I can stop that growth process by living in a way where I incur God's discipline upon my life. I can walk according to the flesh. I can, can become, um, I can go backwards in terms of spiritual development. You can lose spiritual maturity. So we can stop God's work. And God in his mercy and grace, because he loves us, he will bring his loving discipline into our lives to bring us back on track. And again, sometimes what we need is the word from someone else, that physical therapist, that prophet who would step into our lives and say, have you considered? We shouldn't take offense with that. 
You just take it to the Lord. Isn't that one of the reasons we come together on Sunday morning? It's, it's not to get beat up. It's not to get spanked. But it is to hear God's Word. And to know that God's Word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And I, I'm certainly not able to know, nor do I want to know everything that's going on in everybody's life. But God does. And we come together and we hear God's Word, read God's Word, and God is able to put His finger on things that only God could do. One of our church ladies, she hasn't been able to be here since COVID, um, she went on occasion tell me, you did it again. And I go, what's that? And she goes, I forgot to wear my steel-tipped shoes today. Why would you wear steel-tipped shoes? Because because you've been stomping on my toes the whole time you've been preaching. <laughs> well, I didn't know I was stomping on anybody's toes except my own. But that's the power of God's Word. It is prophetic in our lives. God knows what I need to hear. God knows how I need to be corrected gently, lovingly, so that I would turn from whatever it is that's incurring that correction and turn back to Jesus, knowing that he will receive me because he loves me. Going back to Ezra, really not complicated here. These two godly men, two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, God raised them up to say, get with it. There is no reason, no good reason to have stopped. Yeah, life is hard. Yeah, you have some opposition. But my opposition is worse than their opposition. My discipline in your life is, is worse than what they could do to you. I'm going to watch over you. And so they started building. And the governor at the time, this new guy, says in verse 3, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, he got together, and he comes to these men, and he says, what are you doing? Who told you you could do this? And they said, we're rebuilding the temple, and Cyrus told us we could do this. Who are you? I want your names. And they gave him all of their names. And then he sent a letter to the current king, who is Darius. Now, this has been, it's been 15 years since they laid off building the temple. Long time. And again, that's why they needed these prophets, because of the spiritual atrophy that's taken place. I have a friend um, who's pointed out in one of his creation videos that, you know, a, a grizzly bear can go into hibernation and sleep for months and come out, and it's just as, almost as strong as it was when it, came, when it went into that cave. It only le- loses like 10% of its, of its strength. But if you and I lie in a bed for, for six months, three months, it takes months and months and months to recover our strength. We're just like, just, just kittens after we, you know, coming up out of that bed. We need all kinds of help, physical therapy. And that's the case here. These people need some push. And so God sends the prophets to push them and get them going. And so they tell the governor, Cyrus said we could rebuild this temple. But then they go into their history, and it's amazing what they've said. He's just recounting in his report to Darius, Tatanai is saying, this is what these guys have said, verse 8. Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones and beams that are being laid in the walls, and the work is going on with great care and is succeeding in their hands. Then we asked those elders and said to us, and said to them thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish their, this structure? We also asked them their names so as to inform you and that we might write down the names of the men who were at their head. 
And thus they answered us, saying, this is wonderful, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Now why would Tatanai include that in his report? Because they're not saying we're the servants of Darius. But they're saying we're the servants of God. Now he doesn't say they're rebelling, but Darius would have caught the point of what's going on. And we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago with a great king of Israel, Solomon, who they're talking about, and he built and finished it. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. It's another way that God disciplines his people by putting them under the, under the control of others. And he says, and that's why we became captives. And Nebuchadnezzar destroyed this temple. However, verse 13, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild the house of God. And that's what we're doing, what Cyrus told us we could do. So chapter 6. Then King Darius issued a decree, and search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. What are they searching for? Cyrus's decree. He wants to find out, because Darius didn't know anything about this. Did Cyrus, and this would have been now um, over 15 years, 18 years um, since, since Darius, did, um, since Cyrus, did Cyrus issue that decree? And so, well, Cyrus was in Babylon. Let's search Babylon and the archives. It wasn't there. Now, that should have been the end of the story. And you go, oh, my. Now the Jews are going to have an official decree from Darius saying, stop building. There was never a decree. But somebody was on top of things. And they go, we may not be able to find it in Babylon, but that's not the only place where they keep records. And this other city... Ekbatana, 300 miles away, they searched there. And lo and behold, they found a copy of Cyrus's decree. And they told Darius. Now, see, God's in charge of all this. They knew they were not doing anything illegal, but you still need to see the document. Where's the building permit? They couldn't find the building permit where it should have been. Somebody had misfiled it. 300 miles away. And by God's oversight, they found it showed it to Darius, and Darius goes, this is exactly what those guys said. So now in verse 6, Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bonzani, and your colleagues, the officials in the pro- of, of the provinces beyond the river, keep away from there. Leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the, this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of, Ju- of, of Judah in the, ho- in, the, in the rebuilding of the house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river, and that without delay. And whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs for a burnt offering to the God of heaven, and wheat, and salt, and wine, and anointing oil, as the priests in Jerusalem require, it is also to be given to them daily without fail. And they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven, and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issued a decree that any man who violates this edict A a timber shall be drawn from his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap, which means a latrine, on account of this. And may the, the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. That's a turn of events. 
And you go, would never have happened if these two prophets hadn't said, get with it. Trust God. Yes, things are hard, but you are the people of God. You have a mandate from God. You know what God wants you to do. Do it. Man, I tell you, wherever we fall in Scripture, it reads like the newspaper today, doesn't it? I shouldn't have to spell out the application here. When you're living in a society where, the, where, where, where people, they're not issuing laws, they're just giving pronouncements, they're just giving opposition. No law is actually made. No law was made that they had to stop building this temple. It was just pressure, pressure, pressure. And they caved. And God has to raise up prophets to say, where is the law? There is no law. I've told you what to do. Whether that's meeting together as a congregation or how to educate our children. How to, you know, I mean, there's so many things because our culture stands against everything that is of God. The culture stands against. But in many ways, there are no laws. There's just cultural opposition. Why do we cave? If we would, I believe, trust God and obey God out of that trust, we would see God prove, vindicate that we have done the right thing, as is happening here. And so it says in verse 14, the elders, this chapter 6, the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Iddo. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this temple was completed. On the third day of the month, Adar, it was on the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. From the time that Cyrus issued his decree to come back to the land and rebuild the temple to the completion of the temple, 23 years. Two years they were doing nothing. Two years they laid a foundation. Fifteen years, nothing going on. And then four and a half years of, of getting the building finished. All could have been done. The actual construction of the building took six years. Six and a half years. Could have all been done in the first six and a half years they were there. Instead, it took 23 years. Not only did they rebuild the temple, it says that they began to re-consecrate the priest, the Levites. They did everything in the priestly order of things as it is written, verse 18. And then they observed the Passover, which has been going on for over 900 years, but they have not had an official observation of the Passover in the land for 70 years. And they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread, seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of, of God, the God of Israel. Really, all this comes down to priorities. That's what Haggai said. Ezra, if we didn't have Haggai, all we had was Ezra, we'd say the reason they didn't rebuild the temple was because of opposition. Because that's all Ezra says. Haggai pulls back the curtain and says, this is not just about opposition. This is about priorities. You'd rather focus on what you think matters, your own house, than on the temple of God. You're putting your own practical needs ahead of God. 
One of the reasons they observed the Feast of Tabernacles, as I said last week, was to remind them that they could live in tents, but they could not live without God. And the same thing is true today. We can spend our whole lives trying to make a living and never have the living we're trying to find. Or maybe we get it and still don't have what our hearts hunger for. And we can be dirt poor, but loving Jesus and loving life, knowing that God is good, even though we have little to our names. I remember my childhood being um, really pretty happy one. wasn't perfect, but by and large, pretty happy childhood. And as you get a little older, you recognize what you have and what you don't have, more of what you don't have, because you do a little bit of comparison. And um, I remember asking my mom one time, are we poor? <laughs> and she paused for a minute, you know, thought about how to answer that question. And she says, we are very rich people in Christ. God has given us everything that we need. We've never missed a meal. We have a roof over our heads. We have each other. God is good to us. God is good. A man sat at our dinner table one night, um, used to eat with us fairly often, and I can remember him saying, and he was, he was very well off, bachelor, Christian man, and um, more money than he knew what to do with, and sitting at our table, which was a piece of plywood with four legs under it, and, um, and he one time said to my dad, you're the richest man that I know. And I appreciated hearing that as a kid. Because there is a blessing and a wealth that only God can give. And he wants to give. And it's not houses and cars and bank accounts. It transcends all that. Peace. Joy. Two things that the world is striving for with all of its ambition. Peace and joy. And we can know that those things, and not have two nickels to rub together and have what is priceless, peace and joy. God wants us to. And in his gentleness, in his grace, he is so good to discipline us when we start seeking things above him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all else will be added to you. Again, that doesn't mean we're going to be rolling in the money, but it means everything that matters will be ours. As we, by faith, sanctify Christ as Lord of our lives and put Him first. I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, we um, thank You, God, for your, Your Spirit's testimony, witness to us, to guide us into all that is true and to correct us, Lord, where we, we move away, God, from the centrality of Jesus and putting him in his place of preeminence that he so rightly deserves in each of our hearts and in our homes and our use of time and finances. Thank you, God, that 
in your loving care for us as your children, you know, Lord, when other things are becoming more important, more central than Jesus. And thank you for your gracious ways, many times painful because discipline is painful, but your gracious ways in which you bring us back to a simple and pure devotion to Jesus, where we seek first your kingdom and know that we can trust you to supply everything that is needed as Christ is sanctified as Lord in our lives. So I thank you, God, for raising up men and women in our lives who, in godliness and sensitivity to your spirit, would speak to us, be your vessels, God, for um, pointing out where we may have strayed. We pray that we would be wise and we would receive the rebuke when it comes, the correction when it's given, and not turn against the messenger. Thank you for the example of these elders in Israel who heard, recognized that it was you speaking, and humbled themselves and, and took the counsel that was being given. I pray we would be the same. And we do thank you, God, for the ministry of your spirit through your word to always teach us and lead us in the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.